Today I welcome Peter Goodyear, Headmaster and CEO at Bede School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the approach behind joyful education, teaching inclusivity and diversity, the importance of middle leaders, and owning a school zoo. Understanding behaviour patterns, leadership, mentoring, whether it's your own teachers, but obviously for the young men and women that we educate. But then you talked about crime, and I thought that wasn't such a, a perfect segue, but the human psychology really does underpin a lot of your mission that you do at Beach. And you talk about, you know, crafting a more joyful education and allowing all to flourish. What does a joyful learning experience look like? The most important thing around a joyful education is an education in which we celebrate the process of learning. And I think that's fundamental to what we do here is about celebrating the actual experience that a child might have here and not becoming preoccupied with an end result. What that joyful experience looks like, it's about allowing children to find those things that they're able to do, which provide for them fulfillment and provide for them a sense of immersion, that they're able to immerse themselves in something that they really have an enthusiasm for, that they've really got a passion for, and that they really enjoy doing. Now, that's not, we know full well that that's not going to be every element of what they do on a day-to-day basis. That's about stringing an experience together, which has the necessary elements in it to allow them to have that overarching enjoyment of learning. So learning about other cultures, learning about their friends, having a sense of curiosity, which sits beyond being judgmental. And I think if you are children that are genuinely curious about your friends, about the subjects that you're studying, about the activities that you participate in, then that brings with it a sense of joy. The process of joyful learning is, you know, that that can be applied to anything. And you don't need to really enjoy a subject as opposed to enjoy. So, you know, it might be that I enjoy the process and that I enjoy learning science because of the way that you develop your teaching techniques and the way you immerse yourself. But me as a student, I might not enjoy it because it's not my strength. How do you balance the joy and the enjoyment side of of a subject for a student? I often think about this in respect of the way in which education can become, as I said earlier, that education can be preoccupied with an end result. So we almost want to get people to get a qualification in something. And what I really want is that children that won't, won't necessarily get an A-level in philosophy and religion or won't get an A-level in chemistry. But what they will do is be able to have a conversation with their teachers at the end of their time in school to say, yeah, I didn't take it for A-level. I haven't got an A-level qualification in religion and philosophy or in geography. But what I do know is that the way in which you taught it and what I've learned about myself and what I've learned about the world has provided me with that sense of joy and that's been brought by the curiosity that I developed as a consequence of the teaching and the experience that I had in the classroom. I mean how does Speed School deliver joy within its education because the curriculum is quite broad, teachers are quite diverse in terms of their skill sets and training. How do you go about delivering joy? By knowing every single individual child because yes the teachers are diverse, we've got a very broad curriculum We've got a broad range of subjects. We've also got a very, very broad range of pupils. You've almost, within that, you've got to have a philosophy in which you see that for every single child, they've got their own definition of success. If you try and pigeonhole all the children in a particular way, then 
you might allow joy to be found by certain children, you're not definitely not going to find it across all the pupils. It's not always an easy thing to do, and sometimes it takes a lot longer. But for me, it hinges on the care and the encouragement that are provided by each of the teachers. So children need to feel that they're cared for, that they're encouraged. And regardless of what their thing is, they're just encouraged to pursue that opportunity or to pick up on that opportunity, to have an opportunity to try something that they never thought was possible or to have a go at something they never thought that they would ever have a go at. And I think for me, that's the thing that's really important is allowing every child to be able to define their own sense of success with our support and with the support that is provided at home. And then for us to then nurture and support that passion and those interests as best as we possibly can. And how do you go about recruiting the right teachers? Because, you know, can you teach this and train all teachers to be able to deliver joyful learning? Or is it a certain type and mindset of a teacher? Ultimately, what you recruit, somebody said, and it's probably been played out a few times, the thing that you can teach or what you can do with skills is that you can teach skills and you can teach the technicalities of teaching. But what you can't do is you can't teach the ethos and the values and the philosophy that somebody might come to education with. So we do spend time when we do recruit people is focusing on our values, focusing on our vision and talking to individuals around those elements of them as an individual, their character and the fit for that in terms of recruitment rather than becoming overly concerned about the technicalities and the skills that sit around their teaching. And how do you measure joyful learning? We talked about academic results and there's always debate about league tables and getting all the grades. But you mentioned two good points where it's about someone going through and having a real understanding and respect, whether or not they have a qualification for it. But how do you go about measuring that in a school? Is it something you can or is it just something you feel? I think sometimes we get very caught up in trying to quantify people's experiences or qualify people's experiences. Whereas what we try and do here is work with pupil voice and work with pupil feedback, get our understanding of what we're doing through those means. Ultimately, I do think that children will be, will be a success if they're doing things which they are finding joy in that those will knock on to results or to successes, whatever those successes look like. But to me, what's really important, I think, is gaining from pupil voice and is gaining an understanding on the extent to which children are willing to highlight the experiences that they are having in the school. And we talk here, we talk quite a bit about belonging. If children genuinely feel that they belong in an environment, they're going to be more inclined to be curious of that environment, they're more inclined to be engaged in what's happening within this school environment. And on the back of that, I think you can see or you can feel that sense of achievement as a school in allowing children to recognize that they have actually realized is a joyful experience and a joyful education. And do you think children can be truly successful if they are not happy? And is happy is the same as joy? The way I look at it is I think joy is much deeper than happiness. I think happiness, talking about happiness can be something that is very short-terministic. You can say, oh, well, I'm feeling happy at the moment. I will tie up joy with fulfillment. If you are finding fulfillment in terms of what you're doing, and, and that's a sense of satisfaction 
and achievement in what you are doing, and that is a part of joy. But joy also is the ability to become immersed in something and not necessarily to be too worried about what that which is going on around you. You'll often see artists that are really engaged in that immersive experience when they are painting or when they are drawing because nothing else around them really matters. It's just what they are doing on the canvas or on the paper. And it's almost being able to get people into that space, whether it's designer technology, engineering, whether it's sport, seeing people that are so engrossed in what they are doing, that that makes the real difference in my view. But I think fundamentally, you, you've got to be fulfilled by what you are doing to gain success in it. I mean, I'm completely bought in. I never really thought that much about joy because people talk about happiness all the time. Happiness is probably overused and it does. It feels like short-term contentment and a measure of someone at a moment in time as opposed to, but it always seems to be the long-term metric for success is, are you happy? Joy, I get it. I get the deep sense that you have. It is a feeling that you have. Joy is something deeper, soulful. And within a joyful learning experience, creating a place of belonging through inclusivity and diversity comes into play. How do we ensure everybody finds joy regardless of their background or their circumstances? And it's not something that's going to happen. And it's not something that can happen through osmosis. You've got to really be explicit in your messaging around that sense of belonging about celebrating diversity, therefore providing an environment which is inclusive. And I was saying to the staff this morning, actually, that belonging is something that's never-ending. We can't get to a point where we say, oh, well, you know, we're now at a point where we can celebrate our diversity, we can celebrate that we're inclusive, and we can celebrate that people belong. If you attempted to do that, I think you'd come horribly short. What you've got to understand is that belonging is about taking people alongside through the educational experience. And as you go through that, you are recognizing who they are. You're recognizing that they are different, but you're celebrating their differences as you go along. And as soon as you start celebrating people's differences, then they start feeling that sense of inclusion. They've got a greater sense of wishing to engage, wishing to be a part of a community. And then you build that sense of belonging. For me, what's really important is for us to understand our place within, within the school. Beat Senior School is only 42 years old and started in 1978 down at our prep school and then moved to our current setting in 1979. But regardless of all of that, we are a part of a human train that will exist long after we've gone. And what's really important for me is if we are part of that train, we are holding hands with people that have come before us that have set an ethos around celebrating difference, being inclusive, building a sense of belonging. And we will hand over to other people that are going to come after us. Long after we've left, there's still going to be something here. And if we understand that, then our responsibility while we are here is to build on that ethos and to leave beads in a better place than we found it. And a common message to the school community and to the staff is around that, is about saying we are connected to the founding headmaster, Mr. Perrin, and his team, and we'll be connected to the people that will come long after us because of our shared vision and our shared belief in something which is much greater than ourselves, much greater than our own personal objectives, our own personal vision, and it is something that makes us who we are in the social sense. 
I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And do you embed diversity and inclusivity within the curriculum? And, you know, is more time spent on this? Because we read about it all the time now. We can't open a paper. We can't, you know, turn on the TV without it being mentioned that someone has somewhere has said something some time ago or currently, and it's inappropriate. How do you go about making sure that you are current and you teach that within a school? Again, it's not something that can easily be done and it's not something that can happen overnight. But we've, over the course of the last year, we've developed two groups, as it were. We've got something called the Inclusion Hub, and that's a number of members of staff that have come together with a focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then we've got an index group, which is the group of pupils that has a focus on that. The staff group, the Inclusion Hub, have worked across the school and across our prep school as well with things like unconscious bias training. So they help out with delivering unconscious bias training because to me, that's quite a contextual thing that you've got to know your environment and your community. So they work on that. They've done some work with us on microaggressions. And they've also spent time with other colleagues in terms of understanding what we do within the curriculum. So we've got one lady who has spent time within the English department looking at the texts that we use, the authors that we use, the playwrights that we use to try and build that sense of awareness around matters of equity, diversity, and inclusion. We've done some work around our history curriculum in the same way. It's about a conversation that's an ongoing conversation rather than something, as I said earlier, that's just a line in the sand. We say, okay, well, when we get to that point, then we're all good. It's about constantly looking at ways in which we can improve. The pupils have been quite remarkable. So we've got the index hub and they do a lot of work in terms of their focus this year has been on protected characteristics. We've had two seminars that they've delivered. And in those seminars, we've had pupils that have spoken on a wide range of matters which are dear to their hearts. So gender in the curriculum, we've had pupils talking about child bereavement, we've we've had pupils talking about race, pupils talking about matters of LGBTQ+. So all those sort of things. And as I said, it's about having safe spaces for children and for staff to meet, to discuss these matters, to be able to look at ways in which as a school we can develop and we can build on our experiences here and also to improve that whole thing about belonging. And if you've got places where people feel safe and comfortable discussing, then again, that allows them to feel that they're more at one with the community that they're in and they're able to then become better members of the community because they're able to put themselves out there slightly more, they're able to engage more. It has the potential to be a real positive experience for those individuals. And I think that's built on pupil voice, that's built on staff being engaged in those discussions to able to change and build change in the way in which we do things. How important is it for those pupils to go home to their parents and tell them what's going on? Because they'll spend 70% of their junior lives before they become adults at home 
So, you know, parents have a massive influence on their ability to understand and unconscious bias, understand all the diversity and, and, you know, talk about equity. What is being done and how important is it for the students and the pupils to go home to mum and dad and go, listen, I'm calling you out on this because this is wrong. And are you seeing that in your own school? That can be difficult. Different generations will see things in slightly different ways. And I think that what's most important is the very real understanding that we all learn from one another and that we're all a part of a learning experience. We'll have members of staff here that will get things wrong. They might get things wrong in terms of pronouns or in terms of the way in which they address the school community. So, you know, we try not to talk about things like ladies and gentlemen. And we try and be a little bit more inclusive in that way. At home, it is important because I think going home and talking to parents about the experiences that they are having in school, I think is important. But I think it's important because it's about an enlightening of the way in which society might be changing or becoming more accepting of others that might not necessarily used to have been the case. And I think sometimes that's not always easy, but I think it's important. And I think it's important because we've all got to believe that every single day we are learning ourselves about moving through these matters of equality, diversity and inclusion. It will be never ending and it needs to be never ending. There's constantly new things we all have to adapt. We often get it wrong. Again, it comes back to the point about being human. You know, we will make mistakes, but it's the ability to understand that, to learn, to turn around and go, okay, I made a mistake. I want to learn why I made that mistake. Let me get it right next time is how we move forward. So I want to talk about middle leadership in schools because, you know, they are the engine room to what goes on in a school community from a teaching community. But also they are then your test bed for your future leaders who will come in and maybe be sitting and leading schools. How to empower your middle leaders to make a difference? By promoting to them the notion of risk. And that risk is, is an acceptable part of what you do in teaching. Fundamentally, we spend a lot of time talking to children about the importance of changing the way in which they see setbacks and the way in which they learn from things that haven't gone right. And it's trying to instill in colleagues that same sort of messaging that actually what you've got to do is you've got to have a go at something. It might not necessarily work. And if it doesn't work, it's not a problem. We just dust ourselves down and we go again and we have a try again. The way, if we are going to be genuinely creative in education and innovative in education, then we've got to be appreciative that mistakes will happen in terms of trying to come up with a new initiative, trying to try something new, but getting people into that space to know that that's a part of what we do. We will talk about experiments. It's not going to happen for a trial period or we're going to try this out or anything. It's an experiment. And by definition, the majority of experiments fail. And actually, it's about, well, what do we learn from a failed experiment and how do we change ourselves to You know, you change your variables and you change your apparatus and all those sort of your materials and all those sort of things to try and get it to work the next time around. The same is the case with middle leaders, allowing them that space to try things, to think about doing things in a different way, the opportunity to do things in a different way so that we can learn from those experiments. We can better those experiments because ultimately what we're looking for is an environment that is seeking to become better, an environment that is not 
we haven't got an end goal in line. All we are wishing to do is to be better than we were yesterday and to be better than we were today. It's about having that philosophy to allow people to build their experiences going through that process, which I think is so important. Beyond taking risks, what skills are essential for middle leaders to develop? The really important appreciation of how you are able to gain the best from your team. And to me, sometimes we'll come through it and we'll come through education in a classroom where we're in charge of that classroom on our own. There's no one else that's really putting much say into what happens in my classroom as my classroom. And then suddenly you get into middle leadership and senior leadership where you've got to build that ethos with other people and you've got to accept that other people are going to have contributing ideas to what your, in the broader sense, your classroom will look like. So you've got to trust your middle leaders have a responsibility to build a sense of trust with the people that report to them. And in doing that, those individuals will have a sense of trust that they supported, that if they do try things, that those things aren't going to be held as a guillotine over their head but that there are learning experiences. And I think that's really important. And I think based on what we've come out of in terms of the pandemic, understanding and supporting the individuals in your departments, your house, your sections, wherever those may be, is crucially important in terms of their well-being and therefore your ability to gain as much in a positive way from them as you possibly can, because you've got them in a place where they have got things that we've already spoken about, where they've got joy in the education that they provide, that they feel a sense of belonging to your department, to your house, to your section. And consequently, that they are celebrated as an individual within that department to achieve great things for the department, for the house, and then ultimately for the organization as a whole. Yeah, so the middle leaders are a, a massively important part of a school teaching community. You know, we need them to be driving new ideas, to be developing modern skills as well, so they can steward the young men and women to go out into that world and to define it in their mould. I kind of want to ask, and this is the, a final wrap up, about a zoo. Apparently, you've got a zoo. How did that come about? That's creativity and innovation right there. We've run a very broad set of A-level and BTEC qualifications, and one of those is animal management. And we've built quite a reputation for ourselves within that world of animal management, animal husbandry, animal care. And on the basis of that, we then sought to develop our own zoo here at the school, where children can have day-to-day interactions with animals, They're able to show animal care, animal husbandry, which forms a part of, for some children, forms a part of their curriculum, but for many other children, just simply forms a part of their activities program. It's the most oversubscribed activity because it's quite small, so you can only have a certain number of pupils, but so many pupils want to be a part of that. And whether that's during the weekdays or on the weekends with a boarding community, they get the opportunity to spend time in the zoo looking after the animals but also for those children that might travel from abroad that haven't been able to bring pets with them, then actually they get the opportunity to care for the animals, to feed the animals and to be a part of that. And instead of feeding your budgie at home, you've actually got an African hornbill. Instead of feeding your guinea pig, you've got a lemur or you've got squirrel monkeys or you've got Madagascan mongooses. So all those sort of things then allow us to provide for children, again, allowing 
all the children, there'll be some children who the zoo will be their thing. That will be the thing. And if they can find their thing in the zoo, then again, that comes back to the whole thing about a joyful learning experience, a joyful education, and they feel that their needs in a way are looked after because they then, you know, if they've got a need to look after animals and want to look after animals, that's being provided here. I think it's a fantastic USP. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, just the animals you listed are exotic. I mean, how many animals do you have? Gosh, I think if you, if you started going down to counting different species of fish and frogs and all that sort of thing, I think it probably stretches into a hundred and something different species. But we do like to support local conservation programs. So sometimes we'll be doing stuff with Sussex Wildlife. We'll do some stuff with ZSL, with London Zoo. We'll be doing stuff with Chester, Bristol. And sometimes we find that we become a smaller community for some of those animals that are no longer coping well in those bigger zoos. Yeah, so it is really, really terrific, a really terrific part of the education that we provide. And I can see, well, it doesn't take a genius to see how that can contribute to joyful learning. And I'm not surprised it's oversubscribed either. You know, and you think about us being more conscious, the alpha generation coming through of the planet, uh, sustainability in the environment, everything to do with it. I just think it's, uh, it feels like a no-brainer. You obviously got the luxury of some space and to be able to do that, but being bold and taking a risk and doing something like that, hopefully it's going to open the doors to more schools offering this and offering it to a wider community because I think there's a lot more kids that are interested in this than a traditional academic pathway. So, Pete, as ever, thanks ever so much for taking the time. Thank you, Simon. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to chat to you. Thank you so much. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.